You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 13th of November. And as the Dubai Air Show kicks off, we talked about the top aviation trends and how they're likely to affect you. For example, Dubai's massive investment into advanced aerial mobility and why it's going to make getting a taxi and a takeaway more environmentally friendly. Meanwhile, the elephant in the room at any aviation conference right now is the carbon footprint of jet fuel. We discussed how something called SAF could make all the difference. And Australia has agreed to repatriate people affected by climate change in the low-lying Pacific nation of Tuvalu. It's one of the first strategies of many needed. So what are its chances of success? We spoke to a political geographer, Professor John Barnett. And as DP World suffered a major cyber attack on its Australian ports, we asked expert Rami Kayali what could have happened. And as COP fast approaches, we told you exactly how you can get involved with the event at Expo City. And as the UAE helps to save giraffes in Somalia, we spoke to the head of the conservation project there about why elephants have been prioritised over the gentle giants. Welcome back to the show. Yes, big topic for the whole of this week. We might as well get used to it, settle into it, engage, because the Dubai Air Show gets underway today. The hot topics so far seem to be AI in warfare and which airline is going to place the biggest order for new planes. There's a lot of competitive checkbook operations going on at the moment. It's men with pens and books and money to spend. Um, so, yes, it was very interesting listening to the business breakfast and, and, and where people are going um, with their checkbooks and whether they're going to be buying Airbus or whether they're going to be buying Boeing. But those aren't the only trends because this year there is an entire pavilion dedicated to advanced aerial mobility and the companies coming up with those airborne solutions to what we're facing at the moment, which is road-based congestion. And officials at the Dubai Roads and Transport Authority say the one way they're going to reduce the Emirates carbon emissions is to invest, and they are investing big, in drone technology and flying taxis. His Excellency Mata Altaya, who's the DG of the Roads and Transport Authority, says aerial taxis are going to add a whole new dimension to urban travel in Dubai while promoting sustainability. And that is because, according to some estimates, flying taxis have the potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by up to 80% compared to traditional cars. Hmm. I just wanted to put that under the spotlight slightly. Um, I wanted to find out whether drones and flying taxis really are a sustainable alternative to, you know, our traditional delivery bikes and Haller taxis. Joining me now is the author of a report on sustainability in global commercial aviation. So someone who knows all about it. I'm delighted to rank, welcome Shantanu Ganghada, who is a senior consultant at Frost and Sutherland, who joins me on Microsoft Teams. Good day to you, Shantanu. Are you well? Yes, I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, I'm going to skip straight to that uh, that comment there from the RTA, the suggestion that uh, aerial taxis and drones could, um, you know, reduce greenhouse gas emissions or they produce up to 80 percent less compared to traditional cars. 
is is that a, a sort of a realistic number? You know, are these devices more eco-friendly than traditional cars? Uh, we need to look at it from two different perspectives. One is the direct emissions that come from the tailpipe. So yes, that can be reduced by moving to UAMs or UAVs which have uh, which are powered by electric. But we also need to need to look at the indirect emissions that come from the power source to power these UAMs we talk about, which are electric. If the power source is not uh, eco-friendly, if it's not uh, renewable in nature then our uh, idea of what we talk about net zero uh, doesn't work out. So yes, you may be able to reduce the direct emissions, uh, but indirect emissions need to also be considered. So unless your direct and indirect both are uh, reduced, then we cannot achieve the net zero goal that we are aiming for. And is that because many of these devices are electric, so they're not burning petrol or diesel? Yep. So we, you need to get that electricity from somewhere. That electricity needs to be generated from somewhere. So if it is generated from, let's say, wind, solar, or hydro, then that uh, it 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 uh, works out completely. But if it's generated from the traditional sources, such as uh, coal or any other non-renewable sources, then then that gap is not completely fulfilled. Can I ask you then, why have we not got? electric planes like at the moment everyone's talking about electric taxis and and electric drones but these are all quite small devices these flying taxis the most i've ever heard Mm -hmm. of anyone Mm -hmm. would be like two or three people sitting in them and no luggage so how come we're not trying it with with your your big jets there is definitely a lot of innovation and work being done there are multiple uh, organizations who are beat smaller ones which are recently come up or establishments all are trying to get uh, get a working electric aircraft but we must understand that aviation in the way the industry is it's highly regulated and for right reasons safety because they are going to carry multiple passengers and the second thing is also the technology needs to be developed in parallel with the requirements so even if you talk a smaller aircraft Let's say you talk about a let's a regional aircraft which has at least 19 people. So to carry the aircraft, the weight of the aircraft, passengers, luggage, you need enough power so, uh, uh, storage. That's the batteries. You need the right amount of uh, motor to use that power with the efficiency required. You need to fly at least a minimum distance of let's say 500 kilometers to carry those passengers. So with all these elements, uh, we are the technology is still developing. We are still getting there. There are number of innovations being happening across in Europe, North America few of them in Middle East and Asia as well. And uh, so they are all getting there, but it will be in a very scaffolded manner. We will start with very small aircraft. So there are, we all do have a working uh, two-person like an aircraft, but it's all, all only for recreational purposes or sports use only. But for commercial, it will be some time till we have a functioning uh, where you can book a ticket on electric aircraft and fly for at least a shorter distance. Is it basically because we don't have the battery technology and at the moment batteries are really heavy? Uh, that's part of it. Yes, that's part of it. Because batteries are very heavy, you need to carry their own weight as well, right? Mm. And uh, you need the, the amount of thrust required during takeoff is a lot. And if your power, if your battery isn't able to provide that much amount of power, uh, that, that's a problem. Or if it consumes majority of power during your uh, takeoff, what do you use for the remaining of the flight? So, so this is that's, very... That's where the industry... Oh, sorry, we've got a slight delay in the line, which means I'm interrupting. I'm so sorry. Um, that I think our conversation is being very naturally now being led from sort of, OK, so why not electric into, well, what is the sustainable option for planes? So, for example, could hydrogen ever be used to, to power a commercial jet, do you think? Yeah, so that is something where we could potentially look at having a complete net zero flight. 
uh, but again hydrogen is in a very nascent stage uh, there are multiple safety concerns which goes with using hydrogen how do you store it on the aircraft because hydrogen storage the way hydrogen is in terms of its formula how unstable it is it becomes a bit tricky so there are, of course there are multiple organizations which have done a lot of innovation they are very close to uh, some of them also have done test flights some of them are closer to doing a test flight so innovations are happening there but it will take some time till the regulations uh, approve it till the required technology is enough to support it but yeah we are getting there towards hydrogen so we need to look at all these from a short medium and long-term perspective of all these different technologies. So coming back to the advanced aerial mobility, because that is very Mm -hmm. much one of the big focuses at the moment at this Dubai Air Show, you have done a Mm -hmm. lot of research into aviation. Do you think realistically we could see flying taxis and, and, and drones, you know, relieving congestion and therefore and also relieving the carbon footprint of our of our transportation in towns? At least in the short term, they will start. Uh, they will start at least uh, addressing a part of it, because you must understand there will be a cost attached to it. So it will definitely, or uh, at least it won't be as uh, cost effective as just taking an Uber. It might be slightly expensive, and at, in the time the costs become equally, uh, it will be difficult to. We talk about a complete shifting of using our traditional vehicles to urban air mobility. So that will is a, a far away aspect. But yes, it will slowly start reducing congestions, especially when we talk about the scope three uh, emissions, which is to and fro from the airport. So at least we can start working that out uh, initially. It's so interesting that, that people such as yourself, serious grown-up consultants who do grown-up studies into sustainability, uh, you're, just, you're totally comfortable talking about flying taxis a, a, as a viable option because I still feel like we're in the sort of Jetsons category with it. And, and you know, I've seen movies. <laughs> I, don't, I can't imagine it actually happening. But, but you, you know, you're from the sector and you, you seem totally comfortable with the idea. Yes, because uh, uh, next year at the Paris Olympics, that's when they are going to have the first uh, uh, commercial use of the air taxi. So we are very close to reality. And uh, there have been multiple uh, test flights that have happened across the globe. So we do have a working uh, environment. There are already ecosystem being set up for those flying taxis. So the industry is very much getting there. Uh, the requirements are there. The regulations are coming in slowly. So in a, in a year or so, we should you should be able to see at least a few of those taxis in the sky. So yeah, not, Abs- not Jetsons, but reality. Not Jetsons, <laughs> but reality. Shantanu, I really appreciate your time. Fascinating to speak to you on this topic. Uh, really, really good to have you on the agenda. Shantanu Ganga Kedkar, a senior consultant there at Frost and Sullivan. Thank you very much indeed for your time. I can't quite believe it, but um, you know, you're you're a professional, so I'm going to have to run with it. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the show. Right, we are discussing the Dubai Air Show uh, on the programme all this week, probably. Let's be honest, lots of stories come out of it. But um, I always like to uh, point at the elephant in the room. I'm always that awkward person. And the elephant in the room in any aviation show, frankly, is how the sector is going to transition to net zero by 2050. The sector has made that commitment. And yet it is a very complex question for airlines. Um, It all comes down to the fuel. You just can't really argue with it. It it needs, it, it burns and creates carbon. But just last week, the first Emirates flight to be powered entirely by sustainable aviation fuel took off from Dubai. 
And to a certain extent, that does raise hopes that a more sustainable future is within sight. So just how significant was that flight? Well, we asked expert Patrick Edmund, who is the managing director of Altair Advisory. It's actually enormously important. It's important both to the UAE and to aviation in general. So aviation is a significant contributor to climate change in terms of releasing carbon dioxide, which is a greenhouse gas into the atmosphere and therefore the aviation industry globally has committed to reaching net zero carbon dioxide emissions by 2050 and SAF is a really big part of reaching that because SAF sustainable aviation fuel doesn't release any new carbon dioxide into the atmosphere it releases it from the engines when they burn the fuel but it's not fossil carbon dioxide that was in the in the ground coming from fossil fuels it's carbon dioxide that came from plants or came from the atmosphere just before that. And that's enormously important for the UAE as well, because the most recent stats that I saw showed that probably about an eighth of the total GDP of the UAE is supported by aviation. The aviation sector in the UAE directly employs probably about 200,000 people. And the ratio of aviation activity to GDP for the UAE is probably the highest in the world. So it's an enormously important sector for the UAE. And therefore, Emirates being able to start the process of using SAF uh, in its aircraft, even on a test basis, is a really important first step. What is SAF actually made from? So traditional fossil fuel that planes use, just like petrol or diesel for, for cars and other road vehicles, is a fossil fuel. It comes out of the ground. It's refined crude oil. There are several different ways of making SAF, sustainable aviation fuel. We can grow crops that have oils or sugars in them, and we can refine those into SAF. And in that case, the plants, as they grow, are capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and that's then going into the SAF. So it's, it's not new carbon going into the atmosphere. We can use municipal waste. We can use the organic components in municipal waste, and we can get methane out of those, for example, and use that for SAF. Or perhaps the most interesting for the UAE, we can create SAF directly from renewable power and water and air effectively. So it's called synthetic fuel or power to liquid fuel. We can use green electricity, for example, solar electricity to get hydrogen out of water. We can capture carbon from the atmosphere or from industrial plant exhausts. And we can stick those together to actually synthesize the hydrocarbon molecules that are in fuels. So this kind of power to liquid fuel using solar power, which the UAE has in abundance, is going to be a really important way of making SAF for the future. And there are projections that it would be possible by 2050 for the UAE to produce as much as 11 million tonnes of power to liquid SAF, that's about 70% of all of the, the jet fuel that the UAE uses. My goodness me. I mean, that would also be a very good opportunity to make money. And I know that one of the big things that one of the major sort of messages coming out of the UAE is that this move to a more green economy doesn't need to mean that you don't make money. That's absolutely right. And in fact, one of the things that's that's become clear over the last few years, as we think about the economics of SAF production is that it's going to open up economic opportunities for many other countries around the world. So historically, of course, the UAE has been incredibly fortunate in being a major oil producer. 
in the future, different countries will have the opportunity to be major sustainable fuel producers because it'll be about what countries have access to lots of solar power, lots of wind power, lots of hydropower. So countries like Chile and Namibia have been identified as as good opportunities in the future because they have access both to solar power and to wind power. But countries in the in the Gulf region, such as the UAE, will be ideally situated for this because of all of the solar power they have, plus also the existing infrastructure they have from the, the oil and gas industry, which can to a large extent be repurposed for, for, for sustainable fuels. Why do you think it hasn't been done already? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think it has it is it is difficult. The technology is as I say, now coming to fruition, but it's taken a while. But I suppose the biggest reason is producing sustainable fuel is more expensive than fossil fuel. So this inevitably means that airlines' fuel costs will be higher, and that inevitably means that ticket prices will be higher. And until policymakers decide that this is compulsory for airlines or until public opinion dictates that airlines have to do this, the airlines, perhaps understandably, have not wanted to increase their costs by going down the road of buying more expensive sustainable fuel. We're seeing in successive opinion polls and in other assessments of public opinion that more and more consumers, more and more passengers are becoming concerned about the effects of flying on the environment. Not all of them by any means, but but increasing numbers are starting to, to think about this. And secondly, in many parts of the world, we're seeing governments introducing uh, more robust policies to try to decarbonize the industry. I'm speaking to you this morning from Ireland. Uh, obviously, we're part of the you know, European Union, and the EU has recently introduced relatively strict and increasingly stringent mandates for how much SAF has to be blended into all jet fuel over the coming decades, starting from 2% in 2025, going up to 70% by 2050. So that's really causing a lot of investment and a lot of development of, of new SAF facilities. And I think we're going to see more and more of that around the world. Patrick Edmund there, Managing Director of Altair Advisory, who provide aviation consulting specifically around the subject of sustainable aviation. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Turning our attention to global warming now on The Agenda, which, I mean, as we all know, is melting the polar ice caps. And that means that seas are predicted to rise at least a foot by 2050, entirely submerging dozens of low-lying countries, uh, and that includes places like the Maldives and Madagascar. Now, one nation set to be affected sooner than the others is a low-lying Pacific nation, and it's called Tuvalu. And the, that is why, you know, it, it's sort of sinkability, is why Australia has just offered residency to Tuvalu citizens who are being displaced by this climate change. And it really is a third of it, first of its kind agreement. But we are likely to see, as you can imagine, quite a few more. Joining us now to discuss the topic is Professor Joe Barnett. He's a political geographer whose research investigates social impacts and adaptation to climate change. It is great to have you join us on the line, Professor Barnett. Thank you so much for your time. Is this agreement rare and unusual and is it likely to become less rare and unusual? Yeah, I think it is rare and unusual. It's um, novel for quite a few reasons. Um, from a 
from a political point of view, the recognition by the Australian government that Tuvalu does have this extreme vulnerability is actually new. I mean, we all know that, but governments tend not to like want to admit it. Uh, it's new because it's respecting what Tuvalu wants. And so what we usually see with the politics of climate change is governments are willing to supply what they're willing to give, which isn't necessarily what countries want. This is something that Tuvalu wanted and it's something Tuvalu asked for. Um, there are too many agreements where there is a visa category linked to climate change, but we shouldn't misunderstand that as being about post-migration. It's about creating opportunities. And finally, it's interesting to see a treaty about climate change that's couched very much in terms of security. So this is a response to Tuvalu's security needs, and it's also giving Australia something that it wants from security as well. What is Australia getting out of this? Yes, uh, we have a, the recent government is certainly trying to make amends. It's a more progressive left government uh, than the past government. So it's it's trying to make amends in the region. It wants the support of the Pacific Island countries because it wants to host the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference of Parties in 2026. Um, and there is a rider on this treaty that says that, it, that once it's signed, Australia has a veto power on any security agreements that Tuvalu might make. Australia is very concerned about China's influence in the Pacific and so, and so it gives them some comfort, I guess, that it has an influence over the kinds of security agreements Tuvalu might make. On one level, this sounds fantastic. You know, it sounds like a sort of generosity of spirit moment and it's one that we're going to need to see a lot more. For example, where is everyone in the Maldives going to live when their islands are submerged? Where's everyone in Madagascar or at least on the on the sort of the, the flatter areas of Madagascar going to go? Do you think that other nations are going to be as, in inverted commas, giving? Yeah, look, I think um, it's important to realise that the that there is a lot of scope, I think, for adaptation to take effect in countries like the Maldives and Tuvalu. The Maldives in particular, actually, is very heavily engineering its islands. Um, most of the islands in the Maldives have grown, in fact, because they're engineering them so much. Tuvalu is a different case in point. It's the least developed country and, and doesn't have that engineering capability. Um, we see in the South Pacific that some countries that have ties to colonial powers. So there are New Zealand affiliated territories, there are territories affiliated with the United States, there are some affiliated with Australia, tend to have much more migration. Um, and, you know, there is this kind of big population and, and associated economic umbilical cord between them. Countries like Tuvalu and Kiribati, which is another atoll country, don't have that. And so partly what this agreement is about is about creating those kind of pathways to integrate those societies and economies better. And I think it's a clever thing to do because for now, nobody's been forced to move from climate change, but we know that if that were to happen into the future, that the, those movements are much better and much less traumatic for people if they're moving to places that they're familiar with, if they're moving to places where they have family members who can help them integrate and so on. So this is a really interesting first step, I think, that's beneficial in the short term, but also potentially beneficial in the long term. Will other countries do that? Yes, you would expect the United States and New Zealand would do that. You would expect France might do that for its ter territories in the Pacific as well. How difficult is it to preserve nationhood, to preserve national culture when you're having to move hook, line and sinker to a different country? Yeah, I mean, I think we're talking about long-term future outcomes that are still very uncertain. We know, for example, that atoll islands like those in Tuvalu or the Maldives have historically 
grown asset levels have risen and fallen. We know that they're capable of doing that. The key to ensuring that happens is to kind of mainline those ecosystems in relatively pristine states. We know that you can engineer islands, Malay or Hukum Mali as an example, Hong Kong or Singapore as an example. So, we, you know, the scope for adaptation is unclear, but potentially large. It's much better if we can reduce our emissions. It gives more time for that to take effect. Nevertheless, I think these countries do have some real concerns about um, losing some of their exclusive economic zones if some of their islands above high water are no longer under high water. I think they're quite concerned about, in fact, we know from our research, there are really significant already cultural impacts on people's lives uh, and big impacts on people's mental health because of climate change. And it is a real challenge. And the challenge ranges from these, these engineering type things through to resource management type things through to cultural integrity and preservation type issues through to mental health and healthcare services. So it's a huge suite of things that threaten really, really fundamental ways of living and being in Ireland. And, and I don't think it's something we've seen very much in the world before, that, that whole countries here are at risk and everybody in them is at risk. John Warnett, we just tried to condense an entire sort of lifetime of research into about six minutes, but it's undoubtedly an incredibly important conversation that will be raised uh, quite a bit, hopefully, at this COP28 climate change summit that's happening in a couple of weeks' time here in the UAE. Obviously, these tiny island nations are not responsible for the carbon emissions that are causing their, uh, their islands to gradually become submerged. Professor John Barnett there, Professor of Political Geography, thank you so much for your time. I'm here on the agenda. Welcome back to the agenda. Big story over the weekend. Did you read about it? The UAE-owned DP World still reeling from those repercussions of a major cyber attack on its ports in Australia, which brought uh, all operations to a halt over the weekend. Now, uh, the multinational, which as we all know is headquartered here in Dubai, says that they are now back online, but it was a three-day outage. Uh, They are expecting approximately 5,000 containers to move out of Australia today. I had no idea how big DP World's operations were down under. They run 40% of Australia's container shipment. And there were real concerns that the closure could lead to shortages of everything from medical supplies to Christmas toys. I mean, now they're up and running. Maybe those fears have abated slightly. But DP World says it is still in the process of investigating the disruption and guarding its systems against cyber attacks. Now, It's quite concerning when a big company gets hit like that. And we wanted to find out a little bit more about it. So I'm joined now by Rami Kayali, Chief Technology Officer at the Dubai cybersecurity firm, The Colonel. Rami, thank you so much for joining us at short notice to talk about this sort of uh, ever-developing story. What type of attack do you think was used to target a firm of this size? How do you think they penetrated their systems? Well, thanks for having me, Georgia. Yeah, this is uh, this has been really uh, really interesting piece of news. Like the Dubai uh, DP World Security Operations are world class, so for them to be hit with a cyber attack, it means it's something that's been uh, planned and targeted, and uh, um, and it's really hard to defend uh, to defend against. There are some uh, there's uh, there are some news about how this attack could have been happened, but it's still it's still under investigation. The problem is. It might seem that an attack like this is complicated, but it doesn't really have to be. The planning part is usually the complicated, uh, the complicated, time-consuming part because you know you have to discover 
how to get your way into an organization of this size. But executing the attack, once you find a small vulnerability, it's kind of like pulling a thread in a wool sweater. Uh, once you find that, that beginning, you can break into it and uh, expand from there. So, By the looks of it, it's a weakness in a piece of software that's uh, that's been used internally. So it looks like someone's managed to access the internal systems. And the way they reacted was by entirely switching off the internet, basically, into these ports. Essentially, yeah. Um, there's a, there's some news that it, could, that it could be a ransomware attack, which is a type of attack that... Um, I don't know if you've heard about this. So it's a it's a type of malware that infects your computer, encrypts all of your data, uh, puts it under a password, and then asks you for a ransom. Gives you a link, say, look, if you want all your data back, click this link, pay me in Bitcoin this certain amount, and I'll give you the password to unlock your data and give it back to you. It's a it holds your data hostage. So um, yeah, during investigation, it's uh, it's always better to be overprotective than underprotective. I'd rather shut down the internet for a day instead of shutting down my operations for three months. Uh, just in terms of being, you know, erring on the side of cautious. So we don't know yet whether it was a, a ransomware attack. Do we know whether they lost any data? Whether they, you know, whether privacy has been compromised? It's. Uh, from what I see, it's hard to tell. Um, the, the the story is so fresh, mm. and uh, there, ha- there hasn't been. It's still under investigation. The problem is investigating an attack like this. I mean, there are comparable attacks for organizations of similar size that happened. You know, there are a few every year. Investigating something like that can take months, sometimes sometimes longer. Um, it's not really straightforward, and with, with IT threat. Typical threats like this, after they infect an organization, it's really, really, really hard to prove that you've completely erased it. Mm. That's That takes months of work. Yeah, I mean, that's the fear because, you know, once they're in your system, how do you know you've managed to, to get them out? You know, the fear is that you continue to operate normally and meanwhile they're just harvesting all the data. Kind of. There are ways. So there are systems and I'm sure DP World uses them because... They're pretty much a, a standard a standard types of systems that allow you to monitor certain activity, monitor what data is being accessed. Uh, you have data sensitivity classifiers. You have things that allow the security operation team to detect suspicious activity, whether or not it's coming from a malicious uh, from a malicious piece of software. So you need a multi layer approach for, for to protect your data from uh, this kind of attack. Um, I'm sure the coming days we'll find more information about this. Uh, just because DP, DP World's response, you're right. I think it, it took about two days for the whole thing from, from the story uh, breaking into the website coming back up. Um, I'm sure they'll release a statement specifically about this. We're, like This is still being investigated, so it's hard to tell at this point. Absolutely. I mean, it is very much a breaking story. Uh, one last question for you, Rami. Obviously, DP World has offices around, uh, quite literally, around the world. Is it possible that, that yeah. other headquarters, other offices could be infected in the same way? In theory, it's possible. Personally, I highly doubt it because um, these offices, uh, Typically, organizations that have big headquarters around the world have them completely segregated 
with minimal data exchange between the two. And there's a principle in security called the principle of least privilege. The idea being you should only give access to the people who need access to certain information for the time period that they need it to achieve the job that they need, right? Give them as little as possible. Let's say you have a house with 10 rooms and you need to get something from one room. You give the key to that one room rather than to the entire house. It's the same, it's the same kind of idea. So I doubt other, other uh, offices have, have been targeted. I mean, I'm sure they've been targeted in the same way, just because big organizations are always constantly under attack. But I doubt, again, that's just a personal, that's just a personal opinion. And fully, uh, fully understand why you would want to err on the side of caution because it's the same as uh, it's, it's the same. I imagine you're in the jungle, right? You hear a, a bustle in a in a bush. You don't want to wait and find out if it's a tiger or a rabbit. So it's always better off. You're always better off to err on the side of caution. You know, shut everything down for a little bit, investigate, find out what's happening, and then respond uh, accordingly. Rami Kayali, always fantastic to have you on the agenda. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Chief Technology Officer at the Dubai cyber security firm, The Colonel, speaking to us there after uh, the UAE-owned company DP World uh, was hit by a massive cyber attack uh, on its ports in Australia. I had no idea, I said earlier, I had no idea how big DP World's operations were over in Australia. 40% of of the country's container shipments go through their four ports uh, So a really interesting story and great to get our insights there from Rami Kayali. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Now, um, obviously, unless you've been living under a rock, you will know that COP28 is fast approaching. It is only about four weeks to go, less than four weeks now. Obviously taking place at Expo City. Uh, it's going to be hosted by the UAE. It's about two weeks of talks. You get sort of all the global leaders flying in, uh, plus all sorts of other people. My goodness me, you've got policymakers, you've got academics, you've got climate activists, uh, you've often got climate protesters as well. And they all slightly oddly fly in. I know that... There's an odd sort of juxtaposition there. But they fly in for these climate talks. And and, and in the meantime, efforts are underway to ensure that the proceedings are very much open to the public. And of course, Expo City Dubai is one of the best places to do that type of thing because it's, you know, it's used to dealing with large numbers of people. And we've heard a little bit more about what you and I can expect as, you know, just citizens of Dubai and people who care about the environment. Um, We found out a little bit more about what we can look forward to during this two-week period, Um, specifically through Jennifer Crichton, who's our producer, who actually... Can I say it, Jen? You're right. Let's say I, you live there. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, she lives there. So, uh, so if anything happens, she's, she, she spots it straight away. She's like, <laughs> hang on a second. What are you doing there? And you go and find out, don't you? I do. And it is construction central down there. I went for a walk at the weekend and it's unrecognisable. I like you describe it as a walk. I call it reporting, but you could call it a walk. <laughs> I was pushing my friend's baby's buggy. You were working so, as hard as you possibly could at that point. You were officially scouting for the programme. That's it. Working and babysitting 
which is quite the combo. Multitasking. That's it. So I was wandering around, essentially, and there is a huge amount going on on site. And some of it is what we would expect. They're clearly building security checkpoints. We could see them putting in the sort of airport style scanners, all of that sort of stuff that we would expect. What was interesting is that outside of that area of what will be the blue zone, the area for the politicians and the delegates, there's also a lot going on on the main expo site. And it turns out that's because there's going to be a whole gamut of eco-activities on offer for all of us to attend. And the point of it essentially is that they want the public to get involved in the event. It runs from November the 30th to December the 12th. And although the Expo City Dubai sort of winter celebrations and all of that is going on, COP is going to be the main focus for the site throughout that period. And the whole of Expo City essentially is what's being called the green zone, which will be open to the public. Now, we're still waiting for details of how that is going to be ticketed, how it's going to be managed in terms of access. But what they have now unveiled is that there's going to be a a big number of hubs which are dedicated to different areas of the agenda going on at the main conference. Yeah, so you've got eight hubs, including things like, is it eight or maybe it's seven? Seven or eight, anyway. So you've got things like the Energy Transition Hub. You've got the Knowledge Hub. You've got the Climate Finance Hub. You've got the Technology and Innovation Hub. And you've got the Startup Village. I'm just listing now. There's nine, There's nine. Oh, my goodness me. Look at that. The one I like the most is the the final two, the Youth Hub. What's that got to do? about it? So essentially we've heard a lot throughout the sort of planning for COP about how important it is to the organisers to get young people involved. So obviously the Youth Hub that is the focus of that. So the point of it is to provide a space where young people can host events, can share space, can debate their ideas. There's all sorts of stuff going on there and it's in partnership with the Federal Youth Authority and it's really cool actually that all of these different youth groups are going to have a space that's dedicated to them rather than them sort of trying to shoehorn themselves into existing agendas elsewhere. What else is going to be attractive to the children, do you think? Because ultimately, I'm pretty unlikely as an adult to come and wander around the green zone. But if I was bringing my kids and it was a sort of educational day out, then that would probably reinvigorate my interest. So, of course, all of those museums that we had in the original expo are still open, the Terra, the Sustainability Pavilion. And now we're adding to that with what is going to be known as Earth, that's spelt E-R. TH, and that's the legacy for the land of Zayed, and that's being set up by the Ministry of Education. It's effectively a green education hub for schools, for universities, but also for kids and families. Fantastic. Okay, well, that is definitely something that will keep us entertained because the first weekend of COP is the long weekend. That's it's right. the National yeah. Day weekend. So actually, that is the day, that Friday, Saturday, Sunday is probably when most people will visit. And it's a really, I imagine it'll be quite a good day out. I mean, I was told by the the organisers of COP not to expect dodgems or, you know, fairground (laughs) rides. But I think it would be a really good opportunity for our children to experience a a, a COP meeting because they do have a real pageant. And we are actually due to find out a little bit more about what's going on down there today, aren't we? Because you've got an exclusive early interview, haven't you? I have. I'm popping back down to the site later on today to do an interview to find out a bit more about... All of those hubs, but also the sort of programme of events, how the ticketing's going to work. And I believe there's going to be an announcement about a new site inside as well. So I'm going to be finding out more about that and we'll be bringing that tomorrow.
Well done for not saying the words. It begins with F and ends in M. (laughs) Taking a look now at a really interesting conservation story because giraffes in Somalia are apparently undergoing a silent extinction. That is according to conservationists who say their efforts to save other species like... (laughs) species like elephants mean that giraffes just aren't getting a look in. Uh, But that was until now because a UAE-backed conservation campaign is offering a vital lifeline to those giraffes. Uh, I'm joined now by one of the leaders and the founder of the Somali Giraffe Project, Dr. Abdullahi Ali, who joins me on the line. Uh, Dr. Ali, thank you very much indeed for your time. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you are aiming to do? Because you're actually operating in northeastern Kenya, aren't you? Correct. Um, and thank you for having me. Yes, we are doing uh, area-wide giraffe conservation in eastern Kenya, in northeastern Kenya, and areas along the Kenya-Somali border, which is a critical part of the range. And there are about 15,000 uh, giraffes in, in this area that uh, haven't had any conservation attention in the past 30 years, and they have been declining so rapidly. And, and we are trying uh, various conservation efforts to ensure that they persist into the future in partnership with the local communities. How few giraffes are there now? Are you literally down to, to thousands? Yes. Uh, there are, in this particular area, there are about 8,000 left. 8,000? And, and why is that? Yeah. It's because there are several factors that... Uh, are affecting them, uh, the big one being habitat loss. Um, most large mammals require space, and there have been a lot of fragmentation in the habitat. Uh, and in this particular area, it's also very prone to climate change, uh, so there have been a lot of drought um, uh, that has affected the food that they have. Uh, in addition, uh, it's a porous uh, uh, volatile area uh, so there's a lot of uh, illegal hunting and poaching and cross-border bushmeat trade that is uh, threatening their recruitment and survival. Now I understand that uh, you've received a $15,000 grant from the Mohammed bin Zayed Species Conservation Fund. How will that money help your campaign to save these animals from extinction? So we're doing a variety of things with that money, a variety of efforts. Uh, being one being of them, uh, one of them being uh, giraffe tagging, uh, which is uh, putting GPS collars on their tails to understand their movement across the range and how they share the landscape with humans. We're also using that fund to um, train uh, and create awareness to farmers who are in constant conflict with giraffes in uh, this part of, of, of Kenya. There's one permanent water source and people who have been displaced uh, by uh, or people who have lost livestock as a consequence of climate change have settled along the water corridors and they're blocking giraffe uh, access water into the river. Uh, So there's constant conflict which uh, involves uh, giraffe damaging crops and farmers retaliating and attacking giraffes with either, you know, injuries or with its nests. Uh, so we are uh, developing a coexistence uh, tools uh, for the farmers and the giraffes in an effort to have 
sustainable farming and a thriving giraffe population into the future. Gosh, it's really interesting to hear there of human beings coming into conflict with animals already because of a lack of water, a lack of uh, resources. Uh, Dr. Ali, thank you so much for joining me on the line. We really appreciate you taking the time to tell us about your project out there. It sounds uh, it sounds like it's very good work indeed. That is uh, the Somali Giraffe Project, which is operating in northeastern Kenya. Dr. Abdullahi Ali, who's the founder of the project, joining me right here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. <laughs> The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.